Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but we'll showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Future Tech Podcast. My name is Alan Thomas. I am here with Rob Lips. Executive VP at Sonic Foundry. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Alan. Oh, no problem. No problem. We'll just uh, we'll just jump right into our first question here. Tell us sure. about Sonic Foundry. Who are you guys? What do you do? So Sonic Foundry has, has been around for about 25 years. So we've been around a long time for a technology company. We Our company was originated with some audio and video editing software that was quite popular in the 90s. Uh, we divested those products to Sony uh, in the early 2000s and had acquired a spinoff of Carnegie Mellon University called Mediasite. So today, Sonic Foundry is an enterprise video company. The Mediasite technology that we acquired was actually a an advanced search and metadata solution that targeted video. So for any broadcaster or organization that had a lot of video that needed to be archived and made discoverable, our specialty was taking just a standard video file and analyzing it, analyzing the audio, analyzing the images, any text that appeared in the video, and making all of that searchable so that people could organize that content and deliver that content to the target audience in, in productive ways. So that that's kind of our DNA of where we've come from. And today we're a our our company Sonic Foundry. We have one product media site. We wrap services around it, but it's it's everything you need to to create, 
large amounts of video in the enterprise and archive and deliver that video to your audience and uh, accumulate all the data along the way that allows you to learn from that video that's uh, that's being watched. Wow, that's a, that's a, I was I was floored right when you said uh, you guys have been around for 25 years because of course on this. This podcast, you never hear of a company having been around that long. <laughs> no, like we in the tech in the technology space. Yeah, we've you know, video's been around a long time, and streaming video's been around for a while, but it it has evolved dramatically over that time. We've 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 gone through several you know evolutions and iterations of our company and our technology as the space has really changed. So it's a lot of things have happened during that time frame that we've had to lead the way on or respond to that have that have really evolved us as a company and our technology as well, kind of trying to stay ahead of our customers' use cases. But we've 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 got a lot of staying power for being able to do that and be um be as big as we are in the space. And and how would you say that your the ultimate goals or mission of the company has changed from then to now? What what does the, the ultimate mission look like now? Well we what we started out as as sort of a uh a discovery type product, uh, audio and video indexing. We had a phonetic search tool that could analyze and make audio tracks searchable. So imagine if you're a large broadcaster and you have a lot of audio, um, you know, the name of your video may not be particularly descriptive, but the audio in that video could be very useful to be searched for certain spoken words. So we had a search technology that was really ahead of its time because I mentioned broadcasters because back in the late 90s, early 2000s, broadcasters were really the only organizations that had a lot of video because the real problem that they were, that most enterprises, whether you're corporate enterprise or education or health or even government, the big challenge people had is how do we create meaningful enterprise video quickly? So we, 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 while we had a good search technology, we, we discovered that in order for people to really value search, they actually had to have a scale problem to begin with. You needed to be able to create a lot of video for that search to really be your problem. So we, we solved the problem that people didn't really have outside of broadcasting and perhaps automotive. So we, we architected MediaSite as a sort of a system of workflows that integrates into presentation spaces like boardrooms, training rooms, conference rooms, lecture halls, auditoriums, event venues, where typically presentations might be given. And we we focused on those facilities or those environments mostly because we knew that if we could automate the recording of that audio and video and associate it with whatever presentation material was being projected, we could produce a lot of video quickly because universities, for example, give lectures, hundreds of lectures every day. So our solution wasn't simply to just empower people to author video. Our solution in the early days was designed to just go and be the eyes and ears of a room that a presentation is already being given in so that we don't have to turn presenters into studio experts and we didn't want the studio-like environment to contaminate an otherwise natural delivery of content. So we, we, we quietly integrated into spaces and started producing a lot of content. If you fast forward to today, Sonic Foundry and our media site platform is known for all of the plumbing that goes into recording video and making it available online for viewing. We're not known as much for the search and discovery stuff that we started with 20 plus years ago. It's really now more about 
equipping spaces and automating the process of video being created because any the ability to create video has been around for years but what really allows it to scale in any organization is how tightly you can integrate it into a space and how automated you can make the capture so that the presenter isn't burdened with being a technology expert and that's allowed schools we have schools that that records 250 to 300 classrooms concurrently every single day. And they're producing 2,000 to 3,000 hours of content a week with this sort of a system in place. So for those institutions that have terabytes and terabytes of video, search is becoming their their problem. So we're, we're kind of coming full circle back to the company we were 20 years ago, where now we're really focused on what you can learn from all of this video that's moving around. And, and people, people are familiar with YouTube. And YouTube is a great video platform primarily for consumers. And Google is, is a very valuable company, not because they give you YouTube, but because they know who you are and what you're watching. And they can monetize that. They can sell that. So we, we try to bring some of those Google-like benefits to enterprises where they can have control and visibility into their own data of people coming and watching or creating video within their enterprise, and they can learn from the consumption of that video and start to understand what are our consumers or our target audience really interested in just by watching what they watch and who they are. So we're, we're focused on data today, and it's, uh, we have to be good at the plumbing of video and making sure that video can move freely around the enterprise. But really what we're, what we're all about is the data that gets collected along the way. And so I would think that from starting off with broadcasters up to now, I'm sure your user base just exploded with media sites. I mean, when you consider how who all is using video now, I mean, you're talking about going from broadcasters to entrepreneurs to students to pretty much everyone at this point. That's you know, right. Terms of- yeah, I think, uh, Alan, one of the things that we've seen lately is sort of this democratization of video. As some people call it that. It's really kind of an empowerment thing where it used to be that the video was produced centrally and delivered out to people, kind of the broadcaster model, where it's a central a, a central location in a studio, it's top down. And what we're finding today is mostly because of the, the proliferation of mobile devices and the quality levels of what's out there today, that people are, are realizing that they're carrying a little mini studio in their pocket. You know, you've got a phone with a great camera you can use that to record enterprise video, not just video of your kid learning to ride his bike, but you can actually produce video with this device and upload it into a video platform and control its distribution and learn from its consumption. So that, that, is, that empowerment capability is really interesting today. You know, if, if you think about in a corporate enterprise, the learning department or the training department historically has always produced the training. So you might watch 25 training videos in your company, and it's the same person, sort of like a teacher in the training department doing all the teaching. Today, that's changing. The learning department, because of video and the tools that are out there, the learning departments and the training departments are becoming facilitators more than content providers. So their their job is to make sure the subject matter experts, so maybe the head of engineering, a product manager, somebody in the marketing team, why not let those individuals record themselves talking about their area of expertise versus having that subject matter expert train a trainer and then have the trainer record the video? So all of this is kind of 
unclogged the video cycle and created this proliferation of video around the enterprise. And higher education is ground zero for this. There's universities that are that are getting students involved in the video creation process. It's not just a lecture from a professor. It's students doing video assignments and submitting group assignments through video to their professor. So it's it, the acceptance is there. The technology like MediaSite is there to make it all happen. And the byproduct of all of that is a tremendous amount of data that can be that can be mined to learn about decisions that need to be made or whether a student is likely to matriculate or not based on the viewing habits of what they're watching or not watching in terms of the video that's being provided to them. If anything, it, it, it almost seems like, well, I know because you said that uh, higher education is kind of ground zero. If anything, it almost seems like being part of being a college student now, it, video creation uh, is becoming kind of a required skill, assuming you Absolutely. don't already know how to do it. Most people have, the, the people that tend to associate the, what's happened in consumer video with what's happening in enterprise video, and there's certainly similarities, but the the explosion of consumer video primarily happened because people creating the video were pointing their camera somewhere else. And it's it's very comfortable for me to just point my video camera at somebody else and take a video. It's a little less comfortable to turn it around and point it at me. <laughs> so that that culture of video is is changing now where, you know, it, it used to be if you produced a video for the entire sales organization to watch, you rehearsed and rehearsed and there was good lighting and you know, you might have had a green screen. And today, I think the the producing this video can be done much more casually, where people are a little less concerned about how clean their office is or whether they whether the the production quality is high. They just know that the immediacy and timeliness of the information is more important than the production value. So it's better to just record it and get it out there. And I think you see this on LinkedIn. You know, people post LinkedIn videos, and they're they're pretty much, you know, they do it from airports, home offices, formal offices, you know, out in the field. I think the the consumer of these videos has a much a much higher preference to timeliness than quality in terms of production quality. They want clear audio, relevant information, and they want it quickly. And they'll sacrifice all of the production aspects that you might have been concerned about before. So that, I think what we're seeing now is that the the willingness to be a video creator in an enterprise is much greater today than it's ever been, and, it, and, it's, and it's changing more and more every day. People's comfort level with producing videos is quite high. So in terms of keeping up with this, with the new, new demand or, or with, the, with the, changes, and the changes that you mentioned in these, these past few years, what, what are some of the difficulties that Sonic Foundry had to overcome in order to kind of keep up and keep their place in the space? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and there's been a lot of them. Um, most of them, I, I would say, because we're a very focused organization on video, we're, you know, the the thing we try to avoid are the fads, the things that aren't really, really part of the core of who we're going to be three or five years from now, and trying to make sure that we don't get distracted by by things that aren't going to serve us well for the long term. And everybody that delivers video, any video company knows that we have we have environments that we don't control that we depend on to deliver the video. So Safari, uh, Chrome, Internet Explorer, or Edge browsers. So the browser environment have been a market share battleground 
for the big players in the technology space for years. And they use different tools in their in their their quest for market share. More recently, in the last few years, plugins became the weapon of choice for browser companies. They first started restricting plugins. Flash wasn't allowed or Silverlight wasn't enabled. And a lot of video player technology depended on plugins to be able to play back across platforms. So if you see a link, you would like to be able to click that link on your iPad, your phone, whether it's an iPhone or an Android, your desktop, regardless of whatever the device is, you just want the playback experience to be optimized for whatever it is you're holding. If, if the real estate on your screen is small, it needs to be optimized for that. If it's big, it needs to be it needs to benefit from that. And that's been probably one of the biggest challenges for us as a technology company is to make sure that we buffer our end users from all that complexity. So really, at the end of the day, when somebody clicks a link, it just plays. And it doesn't ask them to go to the app store and download a plugin and do all of these things. And that that has been challenging because the we're we're sort of a you know we're sort of a collateral damage in that battle between you know Google and Microsoft and Apple and others that are trying to dominate with their browsers. So we've we've managed to rise above that and standards have come out of it. HTML5 standards and things have made it a bit easier to do plug-in free playback. So that that is that's kind of what happens in the kitchen for us and and people don't always see that. But it's the burden that we bear is to make sure that any entity, whether it's a Fortune 500 company or a large university or a small university, doesn't have to become an expert in what's going on in the environment around us. We own that. And that has always been probably one of our biggest challenges to stay ahead of that. And of course, if we talk about challenges, we also have to mention the achievement. So what I would say what would come to mind in terms of the past few years, if you think about the main achievements that Sonic Factory has been able to share. Yeah. Well, the the biggest thing is the impact to the users. So I just think back if I, in my, I won't even tell you how long ago it was I went to college, but if I had had recordings of my lectures in school, it would have changed my academic experience entirely. Not Not that it would have given me the freedom not to go to class, but you know, I think one of the things I'm most proud of is that the presence of recording technology in any room immediately gives comfort and confidence to the people in the room that they can be more engaged with the presenter versus trying to write everything down. So if you go into a classroom that has a camera or has a red light saying that it's being recorded, you see that heads are up, not down. The pens are down. They're listening. And that just the just the ability to deliver them the recorded object after the fact to go back and take notes after the session has created this relationship between presenter and consumer that didn't exist before because they were feverishly writing everything down to not miss it. So I, we're very proud of that. And that, that opportunity, I would say we're only 10% of the way there in terms of the impact that we could have. Not enough content is being recorded, so there's much more work to do. The other thing that I'll tell you is that video has a way of normalizing learning because people learn, people have different styles of learning. You know, some people are visual learners. Some people like to, to, to read. So there's different, different preferences that people have for how they learn. And video can normalize that and, and provide equal access to people that have challenges in certain areas. It can slow it down. It can slow the content delivery down if you if you're not a native speaker, for example, or it can speed it up if you are. And it, it has the power to do all of those things, but 
most importantly, I think it, it puts the power in the hands of the consumer to, to consume the content in a way that's that's most important for them, that benefits them the most. And it also allows us to overcome barriers. You know, our technology has been has been deployed in sub-Saharan Africa in in countries where schools are completely disconnected from the internet. And but yet the appetite for good instructors is in the school, but they just by by nature of the fact that they don't have access to reliable internet and that math professor isn't physically located in their school doesn't mean you can't get video to them of that professor with that topic in the school using using means of distributing that video offline. And we're doing that in places that are otherwise disconnected, but but the need isn't any different than it is anywhere else. But all of these things, you know, breaking down boundaries and engaging with, with, with learners or employees is there. And video personalizes everything. You know, being able to see your presenter and hear that, you know, people say half of communication is body language, the other half is what gets said. I believe that that's really true. So I think I think video can, can be a good substitution for in-person. And so when you talk about some of the developments and achievements that you guys have hit, are there any that sometimes get discussed where you say, well, this might be a little bit too ambitious to accomplish today, but maybe within three years or four years or a little longer? Anything like that ever come to mind in terms of, I guess, sort of wish list features or, sure. or concepts that, that sometimes people are batting around? Yeah, I think the there still are infrastructure barriers out there to to reliable delivery of video that have nothing to do with the video platform that I think time will solve and it gets better every year. I think the I think the the I think the technology is really there in solutions like MediaSite, Alan. I think the the people side of all of this is catching up to the technology, which maybe is the way it should be. That the technology should be an enabler for what humans can contribute into that. You know, no organization has deployed a video platform and then the video just magically showed up. You know, you have to have you have to have tools and workflows in place that that allow you to create a lot of content without burdening people in the process. And that's why we've taken the approach that we have of, of focusing on spaces where people are presenting naturally. If you don't want to present in a studio, then just go to the training room where you're going to present anyways, and we'll just show up there and record you. And that's that is. You know that is our main goal for that. I think the I think what we're really going to see change now going forward is that more and more contributors are going to be showing up. In higher education, it's going to be the student creating content. And education has always known, and, and this is the same in companies, is that people don't just learn from experts; they learn from their coworkers and they learn from their peers. There's a hospital in the Netherlands that deployed our media site technology as part of a training program for an, for a, a medical records, electronic health records deployment. And in that process, instead of having the learning department produce all the video, they recruited doctors and they recruited nurses. An emergency department technician became a content producer. And what they noticed is that the viewership went from 30 to 40% viewership up to almost 90% viewership just by having the person doing the presentation be appear to the audience that's consuming it. So if my coworker did the training, I'm far more likely to watch it than if a training department did the training. So I, I think that that's a huge opportunity that I think we, we have barely scratched the surface on of, of getting people like 
non-traditional uh, presenters presenting. And video can video can do that. And I think a lot of that's going to change in in the next few years. And so, like you said, you take advantage of the fact that you're more likely to just ask your coworker, and then combine that with the, with the power of just using video, of having that's the right. personal personalization of video. Well, and a big part of it is, is you know who your colleagues are. So when you know <laughs> that person and you know that they're they're a leader in your department, you're going to want to learn from them. And I, I think that's a that's a pretty powerful way. And, and we as a technology company are just focused on making sure that the retail side of what we do, that the 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 UXs that these particular groups are using to access the video platform to create the content is really designed for them. It's not designed for a technician or an audiovisual person or an IT person. It's really designed for non-technical people to know how to do it. You know, and I oftentimes with our technology, I'll I'll have I'll have a relative or my mother go into the system and just watch her click around and try to figure it out. And it it tells me a lot about how simple it is or maybe you know how complex it, it could be. And that tells me whether non-technical people are going to be willing to use it. So it's a uh, you know it, if it's overly complicated it, it I think adoption will be will be low, and we've specialized in making sure that we the spot the the types of technologies we have that are designed to engage people to create content are very simple, and it speaks their language and it looks and 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 the workflows appear like things they already know and understand, and that that to me is Alan is the the holy grail is scale. It's scale, scale through automation and integration and getting getting more content flowing. And the more that that happens, the data will be there. And that data, the data from a video platform is just one dimension of data in any enterprise, but it can be married up with all those other dimensions to produce the kind of analytics that companies are looking for. And I believe that video platforms are going to be one of the, one of the major sources of extremely relevant, powerful data. You know, when you think about the opportunities that AI platforms could introduce, you know, the ability to scan a video for sentiment, for example. Like I'm searching, show me all the videos that have John Hannity where he's angry. You know, that, that these these sort of AI platforms are out there to do this kind of analytics on video, but the video has to get produced to be able to be analyzed. So I, I think that I think that's a, a tremendously powerful value proposition to any company to be able to have that. And to know who the consumers are, what they watched, and be and from what they watched and what they searched for, be able to understand what they might be looking for. Are they looking to buy something? Are they worried about something? Is a student likely to fail? But all of those things are 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 powerful data elements that can be combined together to tell a story. And so, Rob, in thinking about the roadmap for the next twelve to twenty-four months, what does it look like for Sonic Map? Well, for us, we're focusing a lot on on empowering presenter consumer type engagements where we're not just delivering a video and having them click on the video, but maybe we're introducing quizzing components and maybe the video plays for five minutes and asks a question or takes a poll. And so in addition to just viewing the video, we can actually get people in the video to, to respond to questions and tell us. And that can be done for assessment purposes or just, just informational services or in the medical field, something as simple as, are you there? You know, a doctor is watching a video for a continuing medical education requirement where they earn credits by watching the video. And we have organizations that use MediaSite to ask the doctor, are you still there? And if, if the doctor doesn't click within 20 seconds, 
they know the doctor really wasn't there. It was just playing on a screen. Huh. So there's there's a lot of things that I think will will uh, heighten the level of engagement between viewer and presenter, but then also facilitate viewer to viewer collaboration. So a distance learning program or remote employees are watching a video. Maybe two people have watched the same video and should be dialoguing with each other about that video. So we're building a lot of that into our player experience. We're building our player into the types of environments that are highly collaborative, that that nurture communication between viewer to viewer. And that engagement can be observed by the presenter and they can learn about what people are talking about for a video that they've produced. So anything that encourages a click, a search, a comment, an annotation, a bookmark, um, anything that, that the viewer does actively with the content is, uh, is going to tell us more than if they're just passively clicking a link and hitting play. And that's uncharted territory in terms of adoption. People are just starting to realize the power of introducing those components into the video. And then I think you see spaces coming together. I mentioned the AI space. I think AI platforms and video platforms are are starting to get together and realize we have you know we have things in common. I think video conferencing type technologies, which is a different segment of video, but highly collaborative small audience video conferencing is converging with streaming video. Streaming is sort of the larger audience, um, less collaboration types of video where video conferences might have eight or ten people, highly collaborative communicating with each other, but maybe a video conference gets streamed out. So eight, eight executives could be giving a presentation from three different locations using video conferencing, and that video conference is connected to a streaming video platform to stream out to 20,000 employees. You don't really want 20,000 employees joining a video conference. <laughs> That's too high. It's going to be a lot of background noise. Um, so streaming can facilitate that, you know, introduce a passive experience or a more controlled experience to a large audience, but bring the small audience collaboration into that. And I, I think a lot of these technologies now are, are coming together um, to really to really catapult video as a, as a standard communication tool. And so, Rob, what would you want someone listening to this interview to have as their big takeaway? What's the, the big takeaways that, that they should walk away with when they think about Sonic Foundry? Well, I th- um, another great question. I think that the... Most important thing that I would want folks to know that's unique about Sonic Foundry and our media site technology is that we're sort of the, we our workflows allow you to walk before you run. And that's really important in video because people don't just immediately embrace video and then start ch- doing everything they do by video. It takes time. So our whole architecture is designed to warm up a culture and create this culture of video inside an enterprise or a university or a hospital. And once you have that culture of video established, all the tools are there to democratize it and put video video creation in the power of, in the hands of people um, to get their message out. So it, it isn't a, it is something that we've seen organizations adopt quickly and we've seen organizations that have certain cultures where it takes a bit of time. And our, our solution is designed to allow you to introduce video in a way that's non-controversial or confrontational or even obstructive, where it's not in your face. Uh, you can start producing video just by quietly recording things you do every day. And that's a great way to get started. And people people welcome change when it happens naturally. 
they don't always like the idea of change forced upon them um, and forcing video and saying, we're now just going to consume, we're now just going to communicate by video and create video often is a failed strategy for most organizations because they underestimate the human component that's required to getting it done. And, and we've kind of cracked the code of quietly creating cultures of video and organizations that don't have it and then allow them to scale once they do. Oh, and so, and so kind of easing it in and just making it a natural part of the workday or a natural just part of your day period. And then at that Absolutely. point, you're, you're plenty comfortable with it. That's right. And it's, and it's uh, the organization will tell you how ready or not ready that they are, but the solution will enable you to move forward. And, and you know, the more, the more automated you, you make the system to create content, the faster you can get going. We, we've had organizations that went from almost no video content to producing 30,000 hours of content in a semester. With, a, with the system deployed the right way. It, it didn't burden faculty. It didn't burden presenters. They just went about their business doing what they did, and the video produced itself. And that's a great way to get to a point where people now are just comfortable having video around. And then opportunities abound in terms of where you go from there. Um, but just standing up a video platform and saying, okay, it's here, send us your video, has not been a, a productive way for organizations to start producing meaningful amounts of video. It, the the adoption is quite low in those situations from from our experience. It requires a, a slightly different approach. So we partner with a lot of companies that design spaces. They design these rooms with audio and lights and room control systems. And we work with all of the organizations that equip these spaces with technology. And those organizations understand our media site technology very well and can build them into the room in a way that that is uh, that's productive. And produces content. And so, Rob, what's the best way for our audience to engage with Sonic Foundry or, or engage with MediaSite itself? Yeah, the best way is to go to our website, sonicfoundry.com. Uh, and from there, uh, you know, we have a variety of case studies that talk about, you know, we have over 4,000 customers and about 1,500 of those customers are in higher education and about 2,500 of those customers are spread out between government, corporate, and health, or their, or their associations, or small companies. And we have all their stories on our website by application, by use case, and by vertical that folks can go to to just learn about what people have done. You know, if you haven't got any experience with video and you want to see what others before you have, have, that have gone before you and done, that's a great place to go on the resources page of our website and read some of those stories. They're very powerful. We have one customer was an employee at Dell that cornered Michael Dell in an elevator and pitched the idea of pitched the idea of Dell TV. And the whole concept was to get product related information out to the organization more quickly. And Michael Dell liked the idea, enabled it to happen, and now they're they've been streaming uh, Dell TV with MediaSite now for, for about six years. And it's been a huge success. So it it takes one individual in an organization to say I I have an idea and I think this can be great. And that's that's typically how we start out working with folks. Okay, well, Rob, I just want to thank you for coming onto the podcast and giving us all this cool information. Just uh, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. 
We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.